0: Instead of the obvious stories, a theatre director charged with fraud, a police investigator charged with corruption, and some recreational anarchists charged with terrorism. What do these three cases tell us about justice in Russia, and above all, about power? I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia, In Moscow Shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. But now, on with today's programme. So we know what the big stories from Russia are at the moment. Obviously, the deeply iffy constitutional reform vote, getting that supermajority to be able to claim the support of more than 50% of the total electorate, not just those who voted, did mean a particularly unnecessarily rigged poll. And then there's also the lurid claims of Russian bounties being paid on American bodies in Afghanistan. I'm not saying definitely that I don't believe it happened, Although I'd note that the last such lurid claims of a plan to murder Czech politicians, which I discussed in my 7th of June cellcast, turned out to be bogus. It's more that on that one I'm yet to be convinced. It was especially disarming when the Taliban spokesman said, we didn't need to be paid to kill Americans. I'm worried, I must say, by how easily an off-the-record and frankly rather extreme allegation becomes taken as just basic fact Presumably because it fits people's prejudices and agendas. But frankly, what more can I say about them? (sighs) Not much, really. I have a piece on the vote in The Spectator, and one on the Afghan claims in the Moscow Times. I'll leave links in the show notes that pretty much say everything I have to say about them at the moment, at least. And I don't just want to waffle on and, in effect, repeat them to you. So what I want to do is something different. I'm going to take three particular legal cases currently in the news and suggest that put together. They not only illustrate something about how the Putin system works, but also suggest potentially some deeper tectonic shifts underway. A little speculative, but if it's a choice between that or rehashing banalities about the vote, then frankly, I will take it. The three cases are, first of all, the surprise announcement that Kirill Serebrennikov The theatre and film director charged with embezzlement was going to be given just a suspended sentence. Secondly, the tug of war between the investigative committee and the general prosecutor's office over the case of senior investigator Ruslan Minyakhmetov. And thirdly, the conviction of two more activists from the alleged Siet network terrorist group. I really would want to stress that alleged to seven and five and a half year sentences on, frankly, pretty spurious charges. You may not be au fait with these cases though, so let me just give you a quick snapshot of each. Kirill Serebrenikov had for years carefully negotiated being both a genuinely creative and an often critical cultural figure with working with the government. He had, for example, criticised the annexation of Crimea, In 2017, he was arrested by the investigative committee and charged with embezzlement of government grant money. The thing is that almost everyone who receives such kind of monies has to use a scheme known as OBNAL, actually to use it. OBNAL involves taking legitimate income and in effect converting it off the books into an untraceable dark cash so that you can make the kind of payments you need actually to make things happen. Now, everybody does it. But, presumably for political reasons, Serebrenikov actually got charged for it. There seems to be frankly no evidence at all that he personally profit from any of it. Indeed, some claims are that in fact he gave the government much more value for money than the funds would suggest. If you want to know more about this case, by the way, the most recent edition of Kevin Rothrock's The Naked Pravda podcast for Medusa has a deep dive, and I'll put, again, a link in the show notes to that. Anyway, although Russia's cultural elite rallied round, it was quite a surprise when, last month, he, Serebrennikov, not Kevin Rothrock, was found guilty, but given just a fine and a suspended sentence. Many had expected much, much worse. So maybe it's actually best to contrast that with a third of the cases I mentioned, the Network case. In October 2017, a series of arrests were made in St. Petersburg and Penza, as well as Moscow and Omsk. And these people were accused by the FSB, the Federal Security Service, of being members of an anarchist terrorist cell, planning a nefarious campaign of bomb attacks during the 2018 World Cup. And also the presidential elections. Some defendants cut deals with the prosecutors. Many allege torture to compel confessions. Seven had been previously sentenced in Penza, and this is the, this last pair, Viktor Filinkov and Yuri Boyarshinov, received, as I said, seven and five and a half year sentences from a military court. Now the evidence presented was pitifully, pitifully thin. But let's be honest, in cases like this, that doesn't tend to mean very much. And there were also protests at the trial, which led to yet more arrests. But everyone pretty much knew what was going to happen. Honestly, this looks like a case of careerism that snowballed. Ahead of the World Cup, ensuring that everything went smoothly was an absolute top priority. Putin made that very, very clear. This was to be a showcase for Russia. Now, how better to get some notice from the higher-ups than to claim to have broken a terrorist network that was precisely going to bomb this prestige project? And a bunch of hippies and anarchists, and even one who ran an online vegan store, were, well, let's face it, the kind of people who no one's going to care if they frame. Of course, some people did care. But the juggernaut of an FSB security case rolls on over whoever, frankly, tries to stand in the way. It gets more interesting, though, when it's one of their own. The third case I'm going to mention is that of Colonel Ruslan Minyakhmetov, who was part of the investigative committee's especially important investigations team. So in other words, they're they're sort of top-tier investigators. The FSB handed materials implicating him in a corruption case to Alexander Bastrykin, the head of the... SLEDCOM, the Investigative Committee, and he agreed that Minyakhmetov should be charged and the main investigations department of the SLEDCOM sent the paperwork to the Prosecutor General's office for what is generally pro forma approval. Except that this time, Deputy Prosecutor General Victor Green ruled that the case was illegal and that Minyakhmetov ought to be released. Now this is a case that's still very much live, And we're going to have to see what happens, because at the very moment, SLEDCOM is obviously challenging this decision. Now, this is really unusual, both because agencies tend to kind of protect their own, especially against outside investigations. And here we actually have SLEDCOM going after a SLEDCOM investigator. And also, Minyakmetov has quite a track record as what in Russian Mafia speak would be a torpedo, a hitman. A prosecutorial hitman, I really should add. He's involved in a whole series of deeply political cases from the fraud case that was brought against opposition leader Alexei Navalny, which saw him receive a suspended sentence that, fortuitously enough, barred him from standing for office, to the case against Denis Sugrobov, head of the Interior Ministry's Corruption and Economic Crimes Directorate. I suppose I should add in this context that they meant fighting it, not actually committing it. This actually, this case became something of a scandal when one of Sugrobov's subordinates apparently committed suicide by leaping from the sixth floor of the Sledcon building, despite being handcuffed, being escorted and faced with a closed, and some suggest, locked window. It's a mystery. Now Victor Grin, who incidentally is under Magnitsky law sanctions for his role in covering up that sordid tale of death, abuse and industrial scale fraud, is no stranger to controversy. He has long had a personal grudge against Bastrikin, they used to work together by the way, and has a track record of throwing wrenches into the gears of the Sledcom machine. What's interesting though is his recently appointed boss Igor Krasnov was himself previously a senior figure in Sledcom's department for especially important cases. So we'll have to see whether he weighs in on supporting or damning his former colleague. It may tell us much about whether this, and how far it is rather, are simply an institutional grudge match. Now, why have I been taxing your patience with the details of these three cases? Well, first of all, I think they provide a really vivid illustration of what I've called the three rushers. There's the baseline normal Russia, where people essentially just want to live their lives, do their jobs like everyone else, and we see this in the court system as well, where most cases are handled, well, normally. They're decided on the law and the evidence. But that's because most cases aren't also normal. They're not about protest and politics, corruption and corporate raiding. They're about divorce and custody issues, contract and car accidents, normal stuff. So in some ways, this is Russia's default, that most of the time, most of the things are pretty normal but normal russia is immediately trumped when it comes into conflict with the other russias because then there's kleptocratic russia driven by fraud avarice and the depressing fact that in this country it is not so much that money buys you power so much that power can be monetized bribes leverage and the subtler economy of favors both bartered and promised means that justice is for sale or at least for rent. Even so, kleptocratic Russia must generally give way to political Russia, something I've sometimes called ideological Russia, the interests of the state, and the small handful of paranoid ideologues around Putin. Unless you're incredibly well-connected, and let's be honest, if the constitutional vote confirms anything, it's that at present the state is Putin. Never mind l'état c'est moi, as France's son King Louis the Fourteenth said, It's more, no Putin, no Russia, in the rather particularly sycophantic words of then Deputy Chief of Staff, now Duma Speaker, Vyacheslav Valodin. In the Serebrennikov case, for example, I've seen speculation that the very, very first genesis of the investigation was precisely because someone in the law enforcement community thought that maybe a chance to dip their beaks in the -the off-the-books Abnal money but this very very quickly became a political case, when a decision higher up the food chain was made that it was time to crack the whip on these insufficiently respectful and loyal arty types. The same people who later realised that this was proving counterproductive and decided that although they couldn't admit a mistake, they could at least minimise the harm with a suspended sentence. In normal Russia, what Serebrenikov was doing was a perfectly regular way to work around bureaucratic hurdles. In kleptocratic Russia, it became a chance for a bit of predation, but very quickly it, in turn, was overtaken by the needs of political Russia. But what about those poor sods of Siet, those notional terrorists? There, some lower-level Silovik member of the security services and apparatus was presumably trying to get a bonus or promotion by pandering to the political fears of the day a kleptocratic remora, in effect, was clamped on to a political shark. As for Mini Achmetov, I keep thinking there must presumably be an even more savvy Maxi Achmetov somewhere. Um, whether he personally benefited from any of the cases he ran, I cannot say. I can guess, but I can't say. But it is clear that they more often benefited specific people and in institutions in the state. Indeed, in cases such as Sugrobovs, the head of the Police Economic Crime Unit, they were about wresting control of valuable rent-seeking capabilities. Rent-seeking is essentially what political scientists call extortion. A cynic might suggest that Minyakhmetov pandered to political Russia to retain the ability to be able to market his services to kleptocratic Russia. In other words, so long as he was politically useful, He had access, he had power, he had the capacity to do things to other people, and that could be monetized. Now, look, this is just my personal opinion, of course, and he may turn out to be the most honest and honourable public servant in all of the land. We'll just have to wait and see. However, this does bring me on to my second point. The importance of skeletons. This is a system in which people with power are allowed, indeed expected, to make use of that to enrich themselves. Early czarism relied on what was called korumlenie, feeding, whereby officials relied not so much on their own salaries, but from fining people, from lucrative side deals, generally from profiting from their positions. Now, under Peter the Great, this was formally abolished, although, frankly, similar practices did linger on. In 1856, the very, very first government inquiry into corruption concluded that anything under 500 rubles ought not to be considered a bribe. Just a polite thank you. 500 rubles, today that will buy you a cheap but perfectly decent bottle of wine. But then, that was more than the rural police commissioner, for example, would gain as their entire annual salary. And that was considered the threshold for what could be considered a bribe? Tells you something about just how common and often how extensive such gifts really were but today this is more than just simply a way of rewarding loyalty and indeed encouraging its continuation it means that pretty much anyone of any level of power any level of responsibility is likely to have skeletons in their closets the university registrar who lets in academically poor but parent rich kids for a consideration The local official, whose car comes from the showroom, whose planning permits were approved in record time. The hospital administrator, who decommissioned a ventilator as broken, when in fact it was heading for an oligarch's private use. The obnal system's ubiquity is not just a symptom of bureaucratic ineptitude, but also a means of ensuring that even the most upright resident of normal Russia, if working on government contracts, might well have to break the letter of the law, to observe its spirit. The thing about ensuring that everyone has a skeleton in their closet is that real power comes from being able to decide in whose closet to look. To be shocked, shocked to find a pile of bones. Serebrenikov clearly discovered this. Mini Ahmedov made use of this until the day it began to be used against him. But what about the poor bastards of Siet? Well, ironically, the threats, the beatings, the tortures they endured were precisely because they were, in terms of the state, nobodies. They were not treated that way out of sheer sadism, but precisely because of the absence of skeletons. In that absence, they actually had to be forced to confess, to implicate each other, because there was no handy prepackaged charge ready for them. But look, if we've reached sadism and torture, maybe it's time to calm things down. Time, I think, for a quick cuppa, and after the break, two last observations. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Gagliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. So, my third observation, perhaps a really, really banal one, is that social capital counts. We've seen this precisely and particularly in the cultural field, such as the journalist Ivan Golunov, who was framed on drug charges last year, and then released after a quite unprecedented and really quite impressive protest campaign that even extended to the mastheads of major newspapers. Then there was the actor, Pavel Ustinov, who was sentenced to three and a half years on very spurious assault charges, a sentence that was then commuted after, again, a series of interventions from members of the cultural elite. And now, Serebrennikov. 3,700 cultural figures signed an open letter to the Minister of Culture, And even Germany's Angela Merkel called for his release. As for Minyakhmetov, his case is really now not so much about him, but the wider tussle between the rutting bull elephants of the FSB, Sledcom and the General Prosecutor's Office. But nonetheless, even here there is a kind of social capital at work, a sense of honour among thieves. Even if he's found guilty, between appeals and pardons, we'll have to see what happens. It's not impossible that he could be allowed to drift into a kind of professional obscurity in which he can also pick up a job in the private security world or something like that. The usual etiquette, after all, is that if you're a good soldier and essentially followed orders, a bit of personal enrichment on the side, then you may well be allowed to recede into this comfortable oblivion. Those, on the other hand, who rocked the boat, and frankly, Denis Sugrobov was seen as one of those, and even after the Supreme Court locked 10 years off his sentence, he still faces 12 years inside. Well, they're the ones who usually get into trouble. So you might say, in this case, it's a kind of a social capital that is traded and played behind closed doors. And again, who stood up for Siet? The vegans, environmentalists, anarchists, and hippies turned into a sinister, murderous conspiracy. Look, they had their defenders, to be sure. And it's also worth noting that international human rights organisations did an admirable job trying to keep the case in the spotlight. But they had no real leverage. No high-profile public figures stood in their corner. Perhaps because, well, frankly, far too often they only feel it is worth the risk for protecting one of their own. Artists will champion artists. Journalists will champion journalists. And no foreign government seem to care about this. Apparently it's not as a sexiest case as a famous impresario. Without some way of making kleptocratic Russia or political Russia have to care about the outcome, the ordinary citizens of normal Russia are, frankly, defenceless when the state bears down upon them. And this is something the outside world might well want to consider. Thanks to the remorseless campaign and great personal wealth of his former employer, tax accountant Sergei Magnitsky, who died in a prison in 2009, has become the inspiration for a series of laws targeting human rights abusing officials, especially those connected with the massive fraud in which he had become embroiled. But what about all those other Russians, dying in custody or facing five, ten, fifteen years in very rough conditions, with no multi-millionaire to turn them into icons. Is it any wonder in some ways that the Kremlin considers us in the West to be hypocrites, when we will consider some cases so worthy of diplomatic fuss and geopolitical punishment, but those of the so-called little people can be generically deplored, but never really treated seriously, never really given any kind of priority. It's not only the Kremlin that prioritises political and kleptocratic Russia over normal Russia. And finally, the fourth point is about the theatre of justice, a particularly apt parallel in Serebrennikov's case. All three of the cases I've highlighted attest to the extent that, away from the everyday and the humdrum activities of normal Russia, court cases are staged, managed, promoted and presented with an eye to how they frame wider political narratives. The Siet case, sadly, was driven by a desire to hype the notion of a bloodthirsty enemy within, a hidden cancer that justifies the continued vigilance and activity of the Silovic surgeons, those valiant soldiers of the secret battlefield. The narrative of the Minyakhmetov case is precisely part of the struggle, as different agencies try to position themselves as the true guardians of law and probity. Either way, the sight of a senior investigator being himself investigated, is spun as proof, and I hope you hear the quotation marks there, of the ultimate health and honesty of the system, even as one particular case and the sound and fury around it obscures the way that so many others are doing exactly the same thing. And Serebrenikov? Well, what's good news for him may actually not be that good for Russia. In 2017, I feel there was still a sense within the Kremlin that Russia's cultural world would and could best be tamed by a few high-profile cases. It's not that I think that since then the Kremlin has got more liberal. Actually, quite the opposite. And that's the point. We've seen an increase in arrests and provocations and fines and prosecutions for everything from claimed coronavirus disinformation to so-called hooliganism, like... uh, Pyotr Verzilov, for example, the the Vojna and Pussy Riot artist-activist. There is a sense that, if I can quote both Bob Dylan and Dominic Cummings, there's a juxtaposition, hard rains are going to fall. Performative repression is in some ways an alternative to actual repression. And maybe Serebrenikov's case reflected not just the social capital mobilised behind him, but also a sense that there's actually going to be less of a need for prophylactic example, what we might think of as a placebo trial, because the real thing is on its way. And maybe not. It's always sad to end on a low note, and hopefully that's not the case. Hopefully there is no new campaign of repressions coming, though I do feel that, and okay, here I do have to mention the constitutional vote, the frankly ridiculous level of rigging of this vote, and yes, there's no question about it, and we're already seeing preliminary statistical analysis that demonstrate this really quite clearly, is going to mean, first of all, a sense of increased disenchantment and potentially protest in the country, but also, probably more importantly, a sense of insecurity within the Kremlin. And we have tended to find that an insecure Kremlin is not a congenial one it is not one that seeks to rebuild friendly links with the population it is actually one that like any scared animal tends to snarl and bristle all the more fiercely I I could be wrong as I said this is just a, a personal sense but I do worry that precisely because the regime feels uncomfortable precisely because there are going to be parliamentary elections coming up and it has to be thinking about that as well as the inevitable 2024 and beyond Putin issue. That they might decide that this is the time for a sort of a judicious round of, I wouldn't want to call it a, a real purge, but a small purge A little cracking of the whip. Serebrennikov's case was in some ways showing the cultural elite the whip, hoping that that would be enough. But I suspect that they probably have concluded that that is not going to be enough. And so, yeah, let's get our umbrellas because a hard rain may be about to fall. Oh dear. Again, as I say, what a sad way to end. But nonetheless, that is it. Thank you all very much, as ever, for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Gagliotti, or Facebook. Mark Galliotti on Russia this podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons and you too can be one just go along to my Patreon page that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows and decide which tier you want to join getting access to exclusive materials and other perks however whether or not you contribute thank you very much indeed for listening until next time keep well И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.